Last week we began a new sermon series on Paul's letter to the Romans. We are still in chapter 1. If you'll please turn to Romans chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 to 15. And the sermon will focus on verses 8 to 15. Hear these words from the Apostle Paul as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers." asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. The Christian life is not easy. Our commitment to Christ will often be tested. Jesus warns us and prepares us for this in John chapter 17 verse 14 when he said this to his early disciples in his prayer to his father. He says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. But then Jesus says this, the sovereign Lord of all. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I don't ask that you, that you protect them from the hostilities of the world and the hatred of the world. I don't ask for that. So he leaves us in this difficult position. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He's going to attack, but protect them. Keep them from falling to his temptations. 
The Apostle John in 1 John 3.13 says something similar, no doubt from what he learned from Christ's ministry itself. John writes to the church, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't, it shouldn't come as a, as a shock that Christians are marginalized and outcast. And that is something that, that we haven't seen in America in a while, but we're starting to see that, right? Are you surprised? Don't be surprised, brothers. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. And then Paul, in his letter to, to Timothy, says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. So that's what you've signed up for. Not prosperity, wealth, and health, but difficulties, trials, hardships. John Bunyan masterfully captures the challenges that face Christians as they journey through life with the goal of reaching heaven in his little book, The Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? It's, it's a wonderful teaching tool to explain some of the difficulties and challenges we face in the Christian life. But it is an excellent thing for you to do if you have young children. Read that book to them. It will open up many opportunities for you to explain to them key and fundamental parts of our faith. The book, Pilgrim's Progress, tells the story of a man named Christian who embarks on a journey from his home, which is the city of destruction, to his destination, which is the celestial city. And on his journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city, the pilgrim, Christian, passes through these difficult, difficult places. There's what Bunyan calls the slough of despond. Then there's the hill of difficulty. Then he passes through the valley of the shadow of death. And in Bunyan-esque style, uh, there's so many beautiful teachings that come out of that. He ultimately goes to the giant's dungeon. He's confronted by many false teachers along the way who seek to be his companions and yet share things that are not true. People like Mr. Worldly Wise Man and Mr. Talkative. Yet, despite all the hostility along the way, he makes progress. It's the pilgrim's progress to the end. At opportune times along the journey, as he is being battled and, and, and confronted with these difficult hardships along the way, at opportune times, he enters these places of refuge and encouragement. He goes to what's called the interpreter's house, and he is built up and strengthened and encouraged to press on. Then he goes to Palace Beautiful, another destination on the way where he, is, where he receives instruction and encouragement. 
He also shares the occasional company of people who do his soul good, who refresh him. People like the evangelist who crops up time and time again. Faithful and hopeful, some of his companions. They give his soul strength. And this is what Paul is doing in Romans. At least what we see here in these few chapters in the middle of Romans 1. Paul knows that the Christian journey is difficult, but he wants to strengthen them in their faith so that they can press on and make progress until they reach heaven. Let's take a look at what Paul has to say. We're going to look at this under two points. First, Paul's prayer, and then second, Paul's visit to Rome, his purpose for his visit to Rome. So first, Paul's prayer. Verse 8, first, I thank my God through Jesus for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And as we begin to analyze and to look at Paul's prayer, I want you to notice something right at first. I think we read a lot of things that, that is, are written in the New Testament, and we, we kind of pass over important emphasis, emphases in those letters. Do you pick up on Paul's Trinitarian consciousness here? He's not just praying to God in general. Look at what he says. Look at how he thinks through his prayer life. I thank my God. That's a reference to the Father. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Now, he did this also in verse 7. And eight, to all those in Rome who are called, who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you apply the doctrine of the Trinity to basic parts of your Christian life? Do you think Trinitarianly? In your Christian practice, the apostles did. They understood the role of the persons of the divine Trinity in their lives. The Trinity is a fundamental doctrine of our faith. And I want you to see very consciously the elders include the Trinity in so many aspects of our service. The confession of faith, I talked about that earlier. I believe in God the Father. And I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son. And I believe in the Holy Ghost. Those aren't just nice, interesting words to say, but they, they should instruct how we think about our Christian life. Paul tells us we direct our prayers to the Father. But we approach Him through... The mediation of Jesus the Son. How can we approach the Father with our prayers? With any degree of confidence? We do it through the Son. Turn with me to Hebrews. Chapter 10, verse 19. 
This is what the author of Hebrews is talking about. He, he uses the language of the temple going for us to go into the holy of holies, the inner sanctum of the temple. That is the symbolic presence of God. In Hebrews 10:19, the author writes this, "Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how do we enter? What's our confidence? By the blood of Jesus, because of something Jesus has done for us, we have confidence. By the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh. So when you are praying to God, do you think my prayer is to my Father in heaven? And I I dare to approach this holy God, me being a sinner... But I do it through Jesus Christ. Think that way. Be conscientious of your Trinitarian theology in your prayers. But how do we know what to pray for? Paul, he doesn't mention it here, but turn to Romans 8. You ever had a a real burden on your heart to pray for something? Why? What's driving that? Romans 8, verse 26, Paul says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings and deep words. So we pray to the Father, we approach Him through the Son, and our prayers are shaped and guided by the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. In a very practical way, that theology, that deep, difficult, mind-blowing theology takes root in one of the most basic elementary acts of the Christian life, prayer. Now, what is Paul's first impulse when he prays? First, I thank my God. First, I thank my God. When you think about the church, maybe this church... When you think about this church and you pray for Main Street, what is your first impulse in your prayers? What dominates your prayer thoughts? Our flesh influences us to grumble, to complain, to see the negatives... And it blinds us from seeing God at work with His people. Do you ever feel that tendency like Israel in the wilderness? Israel just saw the ten plagues. And they were so blinded to the work of God, what did they do in the wilderness? Oh, God. We have to eat manna from heaven. It's a miracle. But we're so frustrated by it. All we can do is think about the negative. All we can do is complain. Oh, we're so thirsty. Did God, did God do all of that to bring us out into the wilderness to kill us? Did God send His Son for the church without great purpose and without great equipment to carry the church forward so that the gates of hell will not prevail against it? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. The Holy Spirit, who we talked about guiding us in prayer, He disciplines us and He trains us to see God at work in all things. It's not natural. Our natural tendency is to, to look on the negative, to be pessimistic about the church. Paul says, first, I give thanks. And that term first, it doesn't mean that there's a second. It means that that is a matter of priority for him. It's of primary importance. And this is a developed pattern for Paul. Go flick through the introductories to Ephesians, to Philippians, to Colossians, to the first Thessalonians, and to Philemon. Look at what Paul does in his prayers for the church. He gives thanks. And he even does this for a church that is so dysfunctional, it would make Main Street appear to be the best church in the history of the world. Corinth. Do you know at Corinth, we're going to take the Lord's Supper next week. Do you know what they were doing in Corinth? They were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They used wine, real wine, in the apostolic days. Otherwise, how could they get drunk? They were getting drunk. They had some serious sexual immorality that even the pagans would blush at. And Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, says, I thank God for you. If Paul can thank God for Corinth, surely we can thank God for Main Street. Following the apostolic example, one of the things we have tried to do in our elders meeting is we have a standing item of thanksgiving. If you look at our elders agenda, every meeting we thank God. Why do we do that? To keep our focus on the main thing, the first matter of importance, giving thanks. Seeing God at work in His church, which surely He must do. The person who prioritizes thanksgiving in prayer is the person who sees God at work in all of life. Count it all joy, brothers, when you fall into difficulties of various kinds. Even in difficulties... We see God's hand at work. Paul does. Contrast Paul's prayer of thanksgiving with what he says in verse 21 about those who deny God. Those who worship the creation instead of the Creator. What do they do? Verse 21 of Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or what? Or give thanks to Him. The bigger our worldview of God and God's sovereignty and dominance and lordship in this world, the greater potential for us to do what Paul does and give thanks. If we believe God created and rules the world, we will see His hand at work and we will show our gratitude. Now what's Paul's reason for giving thanks here? He tells us, 
First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul's hearing from people who have been in Rome and been around the church, and, and he hears, you, you, you should see these people. They, they used to worship idols, and they were immoral, and all kinds of things were going on in their lives. And they dropped all of that. They turned away from all of it to serve Christ. They've embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, that He came and died for those wicked sins that they committed, and, and to be their Lord, and they, they're all in, they're committed, and Paul just rejoices. But you know what he doesn't think? He doesn't write them and say, I'm so impressed with you people. What faith you have. Who does he give thanks to? God. He gives thanks to God for their faith. That's an interesting approach, isn't it? What's he saying by doing that? Paul knows the state of the human heart naturally. In our natural condition, as we are born into this world, we are born in union with Adam. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes in in Romans chapter 3 verse 11 when he's talking about the universality of sin. He says this, that no one seeks after God. Do you understand that? No one seeks after God. And you're sitting there and you're saying, but wait, I did. I sought after God. I heard the gospel and I pursued it. Did you? Well, thank God for that, because He caused you to do that. He worked faith. It was a gift from God to you. Thank God for your faith, because it's not natural to us. Faith is indeed a human act, and Paul doesn't deny that. We don't deny that. But it is empowered by a life-giving renewal of the dead human heart in conversion. That's what conversion is. Why did Paul, the author of this letter, go from persecuting Christians to proclaiming the gospel? Did he do something? Did he make some decision? No. A decision was made for him. God visited him and changed his heart. If, if you desire peace with God through Jesus Christ, if you're very aware of your own failures, your moral sins, and you, you, you want a way back to God, and you see that the only way is through Jesus Christ, then God has done a work in you. God has changed your heart. That is not a natural inclination of the human heart. Therefore, give thanks. Now, what is Paul's request in his prayer? He says that his desire is to visit them. He wants to visit Rome. So we see Trinitarian consciousness. He prays to the Father through the Son by the help of the Holy Spirit. We see his first impulse in prayer is to give thanks. We see why he gives thanks for their faith. And then he makes, at the end, he makes his request known. 
What is he praying for? He wants to come to Rome and to visit them. And that brings us to our second point, Paul's visit to Rome. Verse 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you. As I said in the introduction, being a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, doesn't make your life easier. It makes your life harder. We live in the world, and the world hates us. The world is a hostile environment. We are in a a spiritual battle from the moment we're united to Christ by faith to the moment that our fight is finished and He calls us home, whether that's by death or whether that's by His second coming. Battle, you are in a dogfight. You are in a battle. The Christian journey is dangerous. There are obstacles, spiritual obstacles on all sides. Paul speaks of these in his letter. He speaks of dangers from within. You see, Christ changes us. He takes the heart of stone out and He gives us a new heart. We're dead in our sins and trespasses, but then He makes us alive in Christ Jesus. But we're not perfected yet. We're not glorified yet. We're in this process where the flesh, which is the the sinful tendencies in our heart that no longer reign and rule over us, are at war with the Spirit, which is dominant in us. And they conflict and they, they rage against each other. And that's why you feel these tendencies in your life where you're like, you know, I want to serve Christ. I want to do what pleases Him. But then there's, there's something else in you that says, oh, just, it's no, not going to cause much harm. Just indulge yourself in this temptation just a little bit. And what do you do? You indulge. You stumble. You fall. You trip. Paul speaks of this in Romans 7. Look at what he says in 7.15. He says, and I think we can relate to this. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. You ever experienced that? I... The Christian's heart is so changed by conversion, by the regenerative work of God giving us new life, that we truly want to do good. But sometimes we do that which we know is wrong, and it, it frustrates us. We're like, you know, I, I, I want to do what's right, but there's something else going on in my soul that causes me to do things that I don't really want to do. And I don't understand it. So, there is this spiritual warfare going on within the soul of a Christian. There is spirit and flesh 
and they are at enmity. They oppose one another. But there's also these dangers from without. In Romans 12, Paul writes, Be patient in tribulation. Bless those who persecute you. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he, if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. So there's persecution. There are people who are our enemies. And here's the hard thing. Yeah, we can deal with enemies. But Paul says, love your enemies. Those who are doing you wrong, do something good for them. If they're hungry or thirsty... You love them, even though they persecute you. That's tough. That's difficult for us to do. There's dangers of false teachers. So not only are they persecuted, but but there's people within the Christian church who are uh, secretly drawing them away from the faith. Paul speaks of this in Romans 16. He says, be careful of those of smooth talk, and flattery who try to deceive the naive. With all of these pressures, all of these obstacles from within, from without, from inside the church, from outside the church, it's easy, isn't it, to get discouraged and to become weary, to want to give up. That happens in the Christian life. Paul's purpose for visiting is described in verses 11 to 15. He wants to strengthen the church and to mutually encourage the church. You see, he labels himself with them. I think that there's a danger. I don't think it's as prevalent today as it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. There is a danger of setting your spiritual leaders on some kind of a pedestal. Oh, you know, the, the pastor doesn't deal with the temptations that I deal with. He, he's the pastor. I, I think our uh, younger generation of, of people um, are, are doing that less. I could be totally wrong on all this, but that's just an observation. But look at what Paul says. I need encouragement too. I need encouragement from you because I'm like you. I stumble. I fall. I struggle with sin. I struggle with temptation. I feel the weight and the pressure of being persecuted and having people who hate me. Paul says, I can relate to you because I'm a pilgrim too. He wants to strengthen them, to encourage them. And this is an important aspect of his ministry. Turn to Acts 14. Description here of Paul's early apostolic missionary work, his first missionary trip. He's going into these places. And you think for a minute... uh, of how radical. You're living in a, in a pagan world, a pagan society, a pagan Rome. 
You're not. You know, we're still reaping the fruits of Christian America. They didn't have in Rome the Ten Commandments placed on stone outside of their courthouses. They did not have in God we trust placed on their flags and their symbols. You do still have some of these things. So, you take these, Christian, these, these people living in that world, living in that context, and they are radically changed overnight by the preaching of Paul. And they start these churches, and they are, they are totally oddballs in their world. Nobody is praising them. They're looked upon as some kind of a weird religious sect. Do you think that there's not a lot of temptation to abandon the faith? They lack a lot of support. So, Acts 14. We're going to look at a few passages passages in Acts 14 and 15. Acts 14, verse 21. Paul has started some churches. And then we read this. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, a place where they had already set up a church, and then to Iconium and to Antioch. And what did they do when they returned? They strengthened the souls of the disciples and encouraged them. Same thing Paul's talking about in Rome. They strengthened and encouraged them. Now look at 15, chapter 15, verse 32. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And then step down a little further in that chapter to verse 41. Speaking of Paul. And Paul, he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Three times in a little less than two chapters, we have this this function of Paul going into churches and encouraging them. You need the church to be a place where you come to be spiritually encouraged and re-energized because Monday comes around and you're back in a world that hates you. The church needs to to warn. The church needs to uh, exhort. But if that's all the church is doing, it just sends a weary people out more weary. There's a time and a place for those things. Paul uses those things too, but he sees himself predominantly as an encourager. Now, how does he do it? How does he encourage them? He says that he wants to come to them so that he can have a harvest among them as well as the rest of the the Gentiles. He says, I am obligated both to Greeks, this is in verse 14, and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He preaches the gospel. He unpacks the glories of Christ 
redeeming the world in such a way where he tailors them for the congregation he's preaching to. And he brings encouragement and strengthens their faith. Look at what he's doing in Romans here to achieve those ends. He reminds them of their privileges in Christ. Chapter 5 of Romans, verse 1. Therefore, listen to me, church of Rome, Jews and Greeks, Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish, this applies to you all. Therefore, Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace. You, you, congregation of Main Street, if you have put your faith in Christ and you have been justified by Him, there is peace between you and your judge. Between you and your Creator. Chapter 6, verses 3 to 4, as we're battling with sin, Paul reminds us that sin is not our master anymore. Verses 3 to 4, he says, you've died. Don't you know this? You've died. You've died with Christ to sin. And you've been raised to a new life. You are not who you used to be as a Christian. You are a new creature in Christ. Now consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Chapter 8, verse 1. Paul writes shortly after that, that expression in, in chapter 7 where he's saying, the, the, I do the things that I don't want to do. I don't understand myself. I want to do right and I don't do right. What happens to us when, when that's the case? What's happened to our relationship with God? Is God no longer on my side when I do wrong? Paul says, after saying, oh, wretched man that I am, in chapter 8, verse 1, He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, you may sin as a Christian, but there is no condemnation for you. No condemnation. He encourages and strengthens their faith. The last thing I want to point out is the spiritual dynamics of being present. If we've learned anything during this COVID time, which is so unusual, and we got a number of people worshiping with us online, none of us were here together for at least three months. Now, how does that affect us? I struggled with that, to be honest. I struggled with depression. Being apart from you, it it is not the same preaching to an empty congregation. There is some, some dynamic going on with being face-to-face and in person. And I know you people who are with us online, you experience this too. When it's time, when it is safe and, and you are ready and comfortable to be back, I know that you want that more than anything. You want to be present with God's people. Now, Paul could have written letters, right? He did. Why? It wasn't like you just catch the 2.30 flight to Rome back in his days. Getting to Rome from Jerusalem was a lot of work, and it was hard work. Why would you want to put yourself through that? Just write a letter, Paul. 
Write a bunch of letters if you want. No, He wants to see them face to face to impart some spiritual blessing to them. He he desires to be personally present. I long to see you, he says. And that's why I think that that what we're doing now is it's necessary, but it can never replace face-to-face, in-person worship. Never. Because that's not how God designed us. We are created for togetherness. Acts 2.44, the early church, we read this, And all who believed were together. And day by day, attending the temple together, their hearts were gladdened, and they praised God. From that first Sunday in June when we started to come back, I noticed a change, a refreshing, uh, a refreshment that came to my soul. And I've noticed that ever since. And I pray that that we're all, 100% of us, are able to return soon. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, Paul, or the author of Hebrews writes, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some of you. But, why do we get together face to face? But encourage one another, and all the more as the day draws near. Paul first gives thanks for God's work in the hearts of the church. And then he sees himself as a minister of gospel encouragement to strengthen the faith of His people. Pray that that will characterize the ministry and the community of Main Street Presbyterian Church. We're not going to be perfect at it, but pray that that it, it is there because it is apostolic and it is needful for the people of God. Let us pray. Father, we come before You and we, we give You thanks for the faith that we hear of among the members of Main Street Presbyterian Church. And we pray that You will bring more into our church community who are dead in their sins and trespasses, but through the preaching of the gospel of members of this church are made alive to Jesus Christ. Lord, we are pilgrims on a very difficult journey. And we have come in to a place where we can get rest and encouragement today. And we pray that, that Your Word and the preaching of Your Word will have done just that. May Your Spirit apply it to our hearts. For tomorrow, we're back in the world. And we are hated by the world, Jesus says, because we're not of the world. Strengthen us, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen.